Hello and welcome to Adrian Goldberg's talk show, the most eclectic podcast in the world. Politics, entertainment, sport, investigations, whatever takes my fancy, really. This time, Dale Vince, who I'd say is one of the most inspirational figures in Britain today. Dale's autobiography, Manifesto, is out now, but here's the potted history. After leaving school at the age of 15, he spent years on the road as a new age traveller, an experience which culminated in the mid-80s in the vicious Battle of the Beanfield a politically motivated police assault on Dale and other members of his community. He went on to found Ecotricity, which delivers eco-friendly wind, solar and gas-powered energy into tens of thousands of homes. He's also the owner of League Two Forest Green Rovers, whose catering menu features only vegan food. Hello, Dale. How are you? You're right. Yeah, I'm good. Thanks, Adrian. How are you doing? Yeah, really looking forward to speaking to you, Dale. Also, I should say that Dale's book, Manifesto, has been written with John Robb, a brilliant music journalist. John and I both used to write for the music paper Sounds, which you can see him on stage as well when we're not in COVID lockdown, making a racket with his bands, The Membranes and Gold Blades. John, how are you? You are right? I'm fine, Adrian. Yeah, nice to speak to you. Uh, Dale, tell me a little bit about your background because you're a hugely successful businessman but as the book manifesto reveals you come from a, a pretty unorthodox background yeah i would say um first off that i don't think of myself as a businessman i've undoubtedly had some success uh, i see that as being success as an environmentalist and when i dropped back in in the 90s it was to try and change the way electricity was made because it was the biggest single driver of climate change and when I formed Ecotricity in the mid-90s, it was to sell a new kind of energy, green energy, because it didn't exist in the world. And I just figured that I could use business as a tool to bring about environment change. So I'm an environmentalist doing business rather than a business doing the environment, if you like. A businessman is not a title that I'm a fan of because I think it comes with negative connotations. You know, business is often an excuse for bad behavior. You hear people saying, oh, it's not personal, it's just business. Well, maybe that's in gangster films, but I think it's in the world of business as well. I, I think that's wrong. I think business needs to be repurposed. We shouldn't pursue only money. We should be mission-led. We should care about the people that we work with and uh, and the environment all around us. And, and that's what we've done at Ecotricity. And you were someone who followed a very unconventional path pretty much from day one, didn't you? You left school early, as far as I'm aware, had virtually no qualifications, but you were always pretty handy, weren't you? You were able to to fix engines, for example, when you were a, a new age traveller. And when you think about your success, do you think there are lots of other people out there like you who the system doesn't incorporate, who the system effectively fails? Yeah, it could be so. I mean, I left school just as soon as I absolutely could because I had a terrible time there. I really didn't like it. You know, some of that is probably down to my nature. And it was only a year or two years ago, I had a diagnosis of uh, autism, of Asperger's. And that kind of explained a lot of things. And I think back in the 60s when I was a kid at school, 60s and 70s, this was something that wasn't as widely understood as it is now. And so, you know, maybe that's changed. I've not been at school, obviously, for a few decades, so I can't speak to what schools are like now. But certainly back then, it was all about the rules and authority. It didn't have room for individuals. And I was, you know, very much somebody that needed space to uh, to do my own thing and, and needed reasons for, for, the, for the rules, you know. So I I've, didn't fit in at school. I didn't want to be hemmed into a, a career. And, and a job and all of that as soon as I left school I just wanted time for myself so you know I went off uh, to explore the world and um, find what it was that I wanted to do. 
What was it about being a new age traveller that appealed? I say that as somebody who loves a comfy bed <laughs> at night and the, the warmth of the radiator. What, what was it that, that made you think this would be a nice, attractive way to live? I think, again, that's in my nature as well, because when, um, I don't know how old I was, I think I was about 30, and my parents told me that my grandmother on my father's side was a Romany. And so I've got kind of gypsy blood in me, and I just had this overwhelming desire to travel and and I, I struggled to live inside houses and, and I struggled also anyway economically you know not wanting a job living in a town is really difficult and by virtue of that choice you, you're marginalized you know without money there's just nothing you can do in town in a conventional kind of setting and so partly it was driven by that as well the uh, the lure of the open road was to throw all that off and and not be tied down by the need for rent and you know, bills and, and, and all that kind of stuff. I mean, it freed me from, from needing a job, basically, and it gave me the chance to explore the country and um, meet a whole load of new people and just live in a different way. I mean, it was freedom, essentially. That's what I that's what I felt I could find. But in the mid-'80s, that all came to grief, didn't it, with the Battle of the Beanfield? You talk about that in some detail in the book. Just give us a little flavour of that day? Um, the day started out really well. I mean, the winter had been a kind of uh, running battle with the cops since the eviction of Molesworth, the um, anti-nuclear base in Cambridgeshire. But that day started off well. It was lovely weather. There was probably two or three hundred vehicles being camped out in Savanac Forest. And um, we were like, uh, you know, trooping off down the road, heading to a party, we thought, we hoped. And I was a motorcycle outrider, a old Ducati 450. And I was about a mile ahead of the convoy, and um, I got down this narrow road, turned a corner, and there were three uh, tipper trucks uh, in front of me. They'd all tipped a load of aggregate across the road, and behind them was a wall of coppers. And it was a trap because it was about a mile from the uh, last turnoff, so the, the hope was to completely contain the convoy down this narrow road and turn it. God knows what at that time. So I spun my bike around and whizzed back up the road to try and head the convoy off before the last turn, being pursued by a police helicopter, which was the most amazing experience. I kept looking over my shoulder and this thing was following me down the road like in a James Bond movie. And um, a friend of mine in the convoy was listening to the police broadcast that day and he, he heard them say, they've got a motorcycle outrider, stop the motorcycle outrider, which is just hilarious. And, and this transcript actually came up in a subsequent court case. It was genuine. I don't know what the cops thought they were going to do, jump out of the chopper and grab me or something, I don't know. But I got to the convoy, turned them off, and uh, we, we, we turned left and then immediately right, like sort of two sides of the square. And the cops had just come round two sides, the other two sides of the square, and, and just rammed into the front of the convoy, smashing everything, dragging people out through broken windows and just going crazy. And it was kind of... It was because they were short-numbered. They'd come round in a hurry to try and stop us. Um, and so they were just just brutal to kind of stop our progress. And, yeah, forced us all into the, the big field that was in the centre of this square. There were people, you know, with chainsaws cutting, cutting holes in the hedge and stuff. It was, it was desperate stuff. Um, and most of us, I would say, got into the field. And then um, there was a standoff for a few hours while the police really just assembled their numbers and got themselves ready. And then they said... Uh, um, surrender or, or we're coming in and they didn't even say what we were guilty of you know they were just going to arrest everybody and then uh, next thing we know that's what exactly what they did they charged in with riot gear on and just beat everything uh, you know uh, everybody women children blokes as well smashing vehicles they were like some 
crazy Roman army to us. Wow. And John, this has got all sorts of echoes for those of us who are members of the 1980s, those of us who went to football matches in that time, people who may remember the Orgreave, the Battle of Orgreave as well, involving the miners, the, these kind of politicised attacks on ordinary citizens. Yeah, I mean, it was, it was very much a, a post-punk theme in a sense, wasn't it? It was there uh, because I think I think culture was changing and the people that ran the country weren't changing with it. So there's a lot of fault lines going on. A lot of misunderstandings, and I think, uh, and I think the cops then are a completely different beast to what they are now. Beast is probably the operative word if you're at the Battle of Beanfield, but you can see it across everything. And I think that's one of the key kind of narratives in the book. You know that at that point in time, Dale was in the middle of the Battle of Beanfield, and yet 15, 20 years later, he's he's one of the leading, sort of, once a better word, industrialists in the UK. And I think that's it shows that. You know, he's probably stayed in the same place, but the rest of the country's kind of moved towards what, what Dale was thinking and the people he's going around with as well. Because I think one of the things I like in the book is the talk of, the, you know, the campfires when they're at night time, the travellers and the ideas, the ideologies and the idealism these people had, which at the time was seen as very fringe idealism. But now, if, even if you read stuff like the Daily Mail, which I don't do very often, but you'll see uh, uh, recipes for vegan food in there or or they'll be talking about, you know, we, we have to do something about the levels of pollution in this country. So even the establishment now has to embrace these ideas and they're not underground ideas anymore. So I think uh, in, in a sense, it's a victory, uh, hopefully just in time. And yeah, it's interesting, isn't it, Dad? We live in a time where the Boris Johnson government has, has spoken about and has given some funding, whether it's enough is another matter, but has given some funding to what it calls the Green Industrial Revolution. Uh, how did you actually get into that yourself? Uh, from memory of reading your book, this was essentially driven by your your need to get a little bit of heating where you were staying in Stroud in Gloucestershire. Uh, let me start by saying... Boris Johnson may call it the Green Industrial Revolution. That's because uh, a whole bunch of people have been calling it exactly that for a number of years now. He hasn't coined the term <laughs> or the concept. He's, he's just borrowed it. Um, yeah. But enough said. For me, by the end of my 10 years on the road, we're talking early 90s, I had a little windmill on my trailer and, uh, and I was charging some old train batteries from a scrapyard and running some boat lights. Um, and a little water pump to a sink inside, and and it you know powered my life. And I was very familiar with wind energy. And wherever I parked, I knew if I was in a good spot for the wind because I could see my battery meter going up. And whenever you turn stuff on, you can see the meter going down. So you're very connected to to energy and the use of energy and its value as well. When I began on the road ten years prior, it was all about candles and paraffin lamps. Uh, you know, which is almost medieval, I guess compared to uh, electricity. And uh, so it's a transformation to be able to make electricity in, in this in this way. I mean, some people on the road had little jennies, and I always found them to be hideous, just chugging away at night, you know, polluting the air, and the sound, uh, you know, uh, it's a polluting sound as well. Uh, to be able to do it with renewable energy was fab. And then I saw uh, the, the first wind farm built in Cornwall in 1991. I went down and spoke to the farmer, and I was inspired by these big machines. and. Um, I thought, you know, I'd spend 10 more years living on the road, a low impact like myself, or I could drop back in and try and make a bigger difference. There was a big windmill on the hill I was living on, and uh, that was my epiphany. Yeah, so you'd built basically your own mast and got the parts from here, there and everywhere to build your own mast and to build your own windmill. 
powered your home in Stroud, and that led pretty much to the epiphany that that became Ecotricity. Yeah, I was travelling around doing it, and I just happened to be parked in Stroud when I had that epiphany. And, and I guess, in a way, it was like a very early scrapyard challenge or scrap heap challenge. I, I used to live in scrapyards in the winter, actually, and I would make a new vehicle and then drive out in the spring. I had one that I describe in the book, my absolute favourite, like kind of Thunderbirds meets the convoy. And it was a box, uh, an army, what do you call it, workshop, just a very sturdy box that was designed to go on the back of the lorry. And I had a flatbed lorry that I'd rescued and, and rebuilt from the same scrapyard the year before. Put the box on the back, but then when the box was on, I couldn't work with the lorry. So I devised a system of legs so that I could jack the box up and drive the lorry out from underneath and have a, a box on legs that I lived in. I absolutely love that creation. And it was all built from stuff in the scrapyard. <laughs> That's amazing stuff and <laughs> tremendous ingenuity. Uh, and John, have you always been somebody who's kind of subscribed to what we might loosely call a green lifestyle yourself? Yeah, yeah. Even before the punk days, which which obviously people our age sort of coalesced a lot, a lot of our thinking and gave platforms to those ideas. But I remember growing up and... Actually, I mean, even back in the 60s, I remember my, my father had a book called The Limits of Growth, which is quite a best-selling book in the late 60s. You start to occur to you that maybe things are rampantly going in the wrong direction. But, of course, you can't provide any solutions when you're that young. But the scenes that we were in, there was a lot of people talking about those kind of ideas. It's, you know, it wasn't just about the music, was it? You know, that kind of period. There was... There was whole ideologies, thought processes, books going around, fanzines, write articles on all these kind of subjects. I mean, I was vegetarian way, way back and vegan about 10 years ago. So the, these things have always been part of my thing, obviously not to an extent like Dale's. You know, I was more in more of the communication kind of side of it and, and the ideas because I'm always fascinated by ideas. But what's great about the ideas are in the book is it's taking something that's you know these ideas have been around for a bit but they, they, they tend to be for people who can afford to do them but what our manifesto said especially the last chapter chapter 13 is is the idea of green populism that these ideas work for everybody and people don't have to give up anything this is not like a monk lifestyle we don't have to go and live in monasteries you know you can you can still have football like uh, forest green rovers but the the model will be eventually zero like carbon footprint version and the food you get there and this is how you would explain what green populism is, is when they replace the meat versions of the burgers with vegan burgers. And Dale had to put a lot of people online, of course, where else these days, complaining about it. But when they start to eat them, they realise they taste it better. So it's kind of say, yeah, OK, we need to do all this stuff, but let's just make a better version of what we've already got. You know, you can still have cars, football, energy, music, but it's just a different way of doing it. So it's, it hasn't got the waste. It brings down the carbon footprint to, to virtually zero if possible. And it's, it's a positive way of going forward and not a negative way of going forward. It's not about editing anything in people's lives. It's about just about doing the same things, but in, but in a cleaner and more thoughtful kind of way. Dale, tell me how your mast that generated the power for your own home as, or your own home as you're on the move, how, how did that lead to ecotricity? Because you're the boss of a, of a massive energy company. How, how did you make that jump? It was not really a jump, more like a series of dolly steps, I would say. <laughs> it took five years to build that first windmill. So I went from a little a little windmill on the roof of my trailer to that first windmill, which was 40 metres tall. It was the biggest in Britain when we built it and the first to be gearless. It was a real groundbreaking machine. Uh, it took five years, battling everybody, 
grid companies, national trust, council, uh, you, you name it. And finally built on Friday 13th of December, 1996. It was a favorite day of mine. And then <laughs> I had realized before then, in fact, that in order to build more windmills, I needed a fair price for the power. And I'd been to see the local power company who were monopoly buyers at the time. And they literally laughed at the idea um, and said, you know, here's a rubbish price because you can only sell it to us. And as I left that meeting, I was aware that the energy industry was liberalizing. Great irony to me, because we have Thatcher to thank for that. <laughs> and, and liberalization is different to privatization. Liberalization allowed competition. And it, it meant that uh, it was possible to set up an energy company. So uh, South Ecotricity, we were the world's first green energy company. We had this new thing to offer green electricity. And, um, and then we built from there really one windmill at a time. And then we moved into green gas in 2010, and we discovered there was a way to make that, that we didn't have to give gas up, which is really on theme with the green living isn't about giving stuff up, it's just about doing it differently. Uh, around about 2010, I looked for an electric car, couldn't find one, so we built one. Already by then, I'd gone looking for the second and third biggest source of carbon emissions, having identified energy as the first biggest in the early 90s. Early 2000s, I thought, let's look for the second and third. It makes sense to do that. found that they were transporting food and that the three together were 80% of everybody's personal carbon footprint. I really like that because it's a very simple story with a powerful component of, of potential action in it, saying to people, all you have to do is actually look at how you power yourself, how you travel and what you eat, and you're tackling 80% of all of the sustainability and climate-related problems that you cause. And so, yeah, 2010, it was about a car, followed by the electric highway. And, uh, and the vegan campaign really started in 2010 with Forest Green, I would say. So an energy transport and food are at the core of Chapter 13, the manifesto, which essentially is a plan for how we solve all of our problems, these multiple crises that we're facing. They're all caused by modern life, by the burning of fossil fuels and the intensive farming of animals, two root causes. And uh, Chapter 13 is about how we unwind them all. Yeah, and John says this is not about living in sackcloth and ashes then. It's not about giving things up. It's about doing the things we do, but doing them differently. Yeah, that's exactly right, because it's still a myth of this whole area that going green is about giving stuff up, that you know we're asking people to give up cars or, or give up energy, and, you know that kind of stuff. We're not. Actually, give up animals, yes, but that's not the same as giving up food or good food. And, you know, animal diets are killing us literally. They're responsible for all of the chronic illnesses that affect us in later life. And they, they ruin quality of life. They don't just make people ill, but they ruin their last years of life. And it's just about a diet choice. And, and of course, it's also driving the climate crisis, pollution, all sorts of other problems, not to mention this big animal rights issue in there. And so in Chapter 13, I show that not only are there other ways to do everything that we need to change, but actually it's more economic to do that and better for our health, which again is more economic because we reduce an enormous strain on the NHS when we clean up the air and we sort out our food. And the whole thing is like a self-perpetuating thing, like a, like a positive feedback loop because and my favorite example is if we all gave up eating animals and became plant-based, 
we free up 75% of all farmland. We still feed ourselves. We live well. We live better, actually. But we can give 75% of farmland back to nature. And in our country, that means 50% of our entire land mass we can just give back to nature. And it's farming that's responsible for the massive depletion of British wildlife. When you introduced vegan-only food at Forest Green, there was the inevitable backlash at the start. Now that it's established, does it go without comment now? At the games, yeah, I would say so. But in the media, no. It's you know, it's the it's the big thing that we're known for. Everybody comes down, wants to talk about the menu. How did it work? Did did the fans mind? Do the fans mind? Ten years later, we're still talking about it to the media. Uh, which is, you know, remarkable. Our fans have moved on. You know, our fans love it. Our fans have gone vegetarian and vegan. And we have fans of other clubs coming up just for the food, going back to their clubs and saying, why can't we have food like this? Chelsea, just before the first lockdown, created the first, and I think the first in, in uh, the Premier League, entirely vegan catering outlet, uh, which I think is just, you know, like awesome sign of progress. Um, so, you know, these, these changes are taking place in football and in sport now. So when Boris Johnson announces his green industrial revolution, Ian earmarks several billion pounds for it, albeit less than his earmark for roads building or roads maintenance. Do you think, well, hooray, we've now got a government who at least are listening to the, the direction of travel that we need to go in? Or do you think, nah, this is just a, a cynical headline-gathering exercise? I, I think it's a bit of box ticking. I think you could say there's upside in the fact that the government recognises it's a box they need to tick, but there's downside in the fact that they have ticked it in a pretty cynical way. So it's 4 billion quid of new money. The next day they announced 16 billion quid of new money for defence. Uh, there's already 27 billion for road building. And obviously 100 and odd, 120 maybe billion for HS2 as well. And so it's a tiny sum of money in the scheme of things. I mean, the total pandemic spending, you know, is going to run to between three and 400 billion. So, you know, we're getting about 1% of that on, on the Green Industrial Revolution that we absolutely need. And it's not Boris Johnson's Green Industrial Revolution. I'm just going to say that one more time. Uh, it's out there. We need to have it. But uh, so I, I'm a little bit torn. I'm glad at least they can see it's a box they need to tick. But I just wish they'd done something serious about it. What about you, John? Well, yeah, I think I think it's it's quite it's quite a soft option. You know, times when everything's very divisive, and you've seen this for years. But uh, green issues are ones that most people sort of tend to slightly agree with, all the way to green with quite a lot. So for them, it's they'll probably perceive that as being a non-controversial issue, which they can sort of talk about a lot without all the other shouting that, that they get for everything else that happens. But at least it's an acknowledgement of the problem. Unlike people like Trump in America, who the fingers very, remain very firm in their ears, it's good that Joe Biden got in because he's much more attuned to these kind of issues. And I, th- I think in the end, it's not even you know radical versus mainstream or left versus right or whatever. I think it's actually, we don't really have very much choice. So we have to work out how to do this in the least painful kind of way. And I think that's another key to the book. It does show that there is a, not a totally painless way, but it's not quite as drastic as, as what many people would fear. You know, and I think within within about a month, these people will be using this book as a template for these ideas. Because I think, Dale, you said the other day at the Labour Party, you had a, an early PDF of the book, weren't they? It would take us some of the ideas on board for their next manifesto or something. Yeah, that's right. I certainly hope it gets picked up and used by, by all sorts of people. I even considered sending a copy to Boris Johnson last week when he announced his is four billion on the green industrial revolution just to say look yeah actually this is what we need to do and 
The only thing I'd, I'd slightly disagree with you there, John, is is that it can be done in a relatively painless way. I think it's I think it's pain free. I think it's actually cheaper for us to pursue this agenda uh, than it is not to. The old way of doing things now isn't just killing us; it's costing us an awful lot of money. It's so super inefficient. Uh, feeding plants to animals to feed humans is a great example of that. You have these reducing efficiencies of up to 10 to 1, as in you put 10 times as much in as you get back out. And we chuck huge subsidies at the farming industry, and the, uh, particularly the intensive farming industry, and also at the renewable energy, uh, sorry, the fossil fuel industry. And if we could take those subsidies away over a period of, say, five years and just, just uh, point them the other way. So there's like 10 billion a year subsidizing fossil fuels still after all the decades that it's been in the world is having a subsidy. If we took 2 billion a year away for five years and gave it to renewable energy, we don't spend any new money. We just spend the money that we have on, on a better way of doing things. Same with food. And, you know, transport is happening already. I mean, there are lots of things government can do. They have all the levers, uh, t- taxes, subsidies and regulations. You know, they tell us what we can and can't do and what we must do. It's the most important part. Car manufacturers are absolutely electrifying. Buses are coming. HGVs are in R&D. Electric planes are in the sky. You know, it's all coming. And, and there's, there's no sacrifice there, actually. In fact, there's a gain. I mean, this week, there's a hearing in London around the death of a young girl a few years ago from air pollution. And it'll be a landmark case if the ruling is made that it was caused by, I think, the South Circular Road air pollution that killed this little girl. But pollution is killing us. The government knows. Because it says 40,000 people a year die prematurely from air pollution. These are government figures. You know, we can end that madness. And it's not just the deaths, but it's the it's the ill health and the health cost and, and all that kind of stuff. So whichever way you look at it, we're spending an awful lot of money and time doing things that are harming us, which makes no sense. Well, listen, Manifesto is a, a fantastic book. I recommend it to anyone. I think the solutions that you're putting forward to the the plight of the world we live in are, are terrific, both from uh, Dale and John's point of view. Uh, a lot of the interest for the book, though, me uh, for me, Dale, is in your own personal story. I, I just find it really interesting that you talk at times about having to kind of separate yourself. You know, you, you need you need time in your life to do nothing. I'm sure a lot of us would identify that, I would identify with that. But you've deliberately avoided certain career choices or you avoided any career choice early on in your life because you just wanted time to think and be yourself. That's actually a very difficult and almost revolutionary act, isn't it? Yes. It's actually, um, it's one of the things I shared in the book that's had most pickup, I would say, in terms of resonance with people. And it's the idea that I've, I've kind of, I want to say, I nearly said suffered from it, but I've experienced it a lot of my life, particularly in my earlier life. The feeling that if I did something, then I wasn't free any longer to do something else. I was committed and that's the kind of feeling that I might have in a day or it might be over a longer period, like a year or something. And it's a really interesting feeling. And so I would quite often commit to nothing so that I was free to do anything that came along and took my fancy. It's a, it's a strange place to be. But once you're committed to do, and you're doing something, you are, you are to a degree no longer free. Yes, although now that you are committed to doing something more socially <laughs> useful, it's, it's very difficult because uh, as a young man, I certainly experienced that. I don't know whether you did, John, but that, that sense of, well, I don't want to do that because it will stop me ever doing this, you know, this group of things that I like doing, like, like listening to records or go, you know, just hanging out with my mates. It's a fine line, isn't it, between being um, somebody with a mission, as, as you've turned 
turned out to be and being a dosser. I'm a dosser with a mission now. <laughs> dosser, I've heard that word for ages. You've known a few though, John, let's be honest. <laughs> yeah, well, I've always been interested in ideas and different ways of doing things, you know, and, and I don't think just because something's always been done in a certain way means you could you, you have to necessarily continue doing it like that, you know. And I like I like the ideas, things you like, but just do them differently. And I think that that's good as well. You know, it's not it's not a complete uh, turnaround. It's it's just a tweak. Isn't it? So it's so. And I think all those people that we we grew up with, Adrian, there were people who were interested with ide- in ideas, weren't they? But we just got funneled into music, which is as it's turned out years later, isn't particularly a great place. For people with ideas, it's actually quite reactionary, the music world. You know, it's interesting to meet people who operate outside that world. You know, that's where the real ideas are. You know, and it's to me, a a brilliant idea is as exciting as a brilliant melody or a brilliant song or something. So it's always been the the thrill of interesting ideas. Even for ideas you don't agree with, it's interesting that they spin your mind a bit to make you think. Absolutely. Well, listen, John, thank you. John Rob, uh, thank you to Dale Vince as well. The book manifesto is out now. You've been listening to Adrian Goldberg's talk show podcast. Thanks for listening.